Well, hello. Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, and so we are still working our way through the third volume of the Selected Letters of HP Lovecraft. We're getting towards the end here. Um, we got, this is a pretty big chunk of, of letters. It's about 100 pages, uh, give or take. But a lot of this, I think one letter here is like 50 pages. So if you separate that one, it's about... It's not that much longer than the other sections we've been looking at, but it's got a few long letters. Um, and then after that, it's just a, a handful left, two episodes probably, but but not, not too much thickness in the, if you look at the pages. So um, yeah, we're coming to the end of this, this little mini-series on, on these uh, particular letters. Maybe that's a good thing, right? I think sometimes the stretches where I look at these letters can get a little... A little repetitive from time to time, but I, I still think it's worthwhile to kind of, you know, go through these letters one at a time, looking at what he's writing to different correspondents, just to kind of um, see what's here, just to, to make sure we don't miss anything, right? I guess that's the main, main thing. Like, for instance, in the last series, we found a couple of really important letters he wrote to to James Fernand Morton, which really deals with um, a lot of Lovecraft's racial politics. Um, so anyways... Uh, in this series, it's always, uh, in this episode anyways, like I always will be looking at 20 letters. But I think we have almost 10 different correspondents. Yeah, 10 different correspondents in just 20 letters. Um, the biggest chunk we have are to Wilfred Blanche Tallman, of course, uh, the person that Lovecraft wrote, uh, well, the person who wrote Two Black Bottles and Lovecraft helped revise it. I did an episode on Two Black Bottles um, earlier in this series. Um, and for most of the others, it's just it's just pretty much one letter to to most of them, one or two. So, anyways, let's see what we what we have here. So, the first one I want to mention is the Robert E. Howard letter dated January twentieth, sorry January thirtieth, nineteen thirty one. This uh, is a letter I'll take a closer look at um, in several months when I look at the correspondence between Robert E. Howard and H. P. Lovecraft. I'll be It'll be nice to be able to uh, do the back and forth. I just, I'll just mention this briefly if you're interested in this letter, because it's not, it's, you know, it's not one of the most important ones, but it has some interesting things here, at least in the edited out section we have in the selected letters. That's always the problem with the selected letters, is everything's edited, and we don't get full letters. That'd be kind of impractical, and they're selected, so we don't got the full correspondence in all cases. But um, thankfully, new books have been coming out that give us a bigger picture of these uh, of his relationships with different writers but uh, this one what we have here is a uh, some interesting stuff on folklore on ancient history he talks for instance a little bit about Roman the Roman cult of the bull which is kind of wild um, and he gets a little bit at the end here to to the kind of the character of the Romans right this is something of course that Lovecraft was really interested in was Roman history and the Roman civilization overall just like the 18th century that was kind of one of the places he gravitated towards in his in his mind he writes for instance I realized that the Romans were an extremely prosaic race given to all the practical and utilitarian precepts I detest without any of the genius of the Greeks or the glamour of the northern barbarians and yet I can't manage to think beyond four 50 AD, except as a Roman. Can you beat it? Your Indian war dreams are surely realistic enough, end quote. So he, he moves, he, they basically are talking back and forth about what kind of inspires them and where their kind of cultural grounding is. And for Robert E. Howard, it's Texas. It's much more frontier. It's a little bit more connection to African-American folklore and Indian stories and crime and the bandits and Mexicans. And it's just a much more mixed culture, right? Lovecraft's in a in a very different world in New England. And he admits it um, here. Uh, and this letter also gets a little bit of this whole question of how each of them are grounded in a different place. And they talk about kind of rural cultures and like rural Texas culture versus rural New England culture and the place of foreigners in those locations. He writes, the rural foreign sections are probably much like our Slav people, Connecticut Valley, Connecticut Valley, and such other New England areas such as the French Canadians have taken. Some Italians also seek the land. In Western Rhode Island, there's also a rural Finnish element, end quote, which is kind of interesting that he, he sees the, these rural areas, these 
frontier areas. I guess it's not really frontier in New England anymore, but these backcountry areas are much more culturally mixed, right? And I think this goes way back to the colonial period where a lot of like Scotch-Irish immigrants and things moved to the West. They didn't settle so directly into the cities. A lot of Germans moved out into the frontier too. So you end up with um, a little bit more of a diverse culture in some of those places. Rural Pennsylvania, rural New England and all that. So, And he writes about this in stories like uh, Dunwich Horror um, and what's the other one? I forget the name of it. Oh, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, right? Which is all about frontier kind of mongrels, triracial isolates of the type living in these frontier areas. So anyway, some good stuff in this Robert E. Howard letter. Hopefully I'll have a lot more to say about it when I closely read the whole letter. Uh, as long, you know, in between Howard's, you know, responses to, to Lovecraft. All right, so next we have uh, five letters to uh, Wilford Blanche Tallman. This is the biggest... Uh, the largest number of letters we have in the single correspondence in this part of the letters. Um, I, I think there's like two or three issues going on in this set of letters written between February 6th and April 4th, 1931. And I think the most interesting for me is his reflections on the Hellenistic age. Right, he had just written about the Romans to Howard, but a week later, he's writing about the Hellenistic Age. And he's always very, uh, he's, like he said, he, like the Greeks had that kind of high culture and the philosophy and the science, the stuff he likes. But um, he was very bothered by this Hellenistic Age because he saw this as like a period of like culture mixing. Right. He, there's this term he used in another letter, somewhere like Alexandrian barbarism or something like this. This term Alexandrian or sometimes we'll just say Hellenistic is a euphemism for that uh kind of cultures becoming mixed and losing their grounding in one single place, right? So you have the Athenian civilization, the Spartan civilization that gets then diffused and mixed up with the Persians and the Egyptians and, and others. And of course, it spreads the Greek language and Greek culture and philosophy, but also changes it and changes its foundations in fundamental ways. So uh, he, he seems to think that Alexander the Great is one of the more dubious figures in, in history. So he talks about that, um, and he talks, he's got a little bit here about New England history in these letters, and he talks about the writing, uh, and, and New England history and architecture, and he talks about the writing of the Mountains of Madness, which he's writing at this time. Now, he's not going to publish that uh, for, for like five years till the end of his life. It's going to be published eventually in Astounding Magazine and two, two issues, so it'll be published serially, but not till the end of his life, but it, he'd written it at this time. So if you're reading his stories chronologically as he wrote them as i'm trying to do here it's it's actually coming up pretty quick we'll be looking at it um right after i'm doing these letters and fungi from Yugoth, whisper in darkness and then we can uh talk about at the mountains of madness something i think we're all hopefully looking forward to so anyways uh what does he say about classical uh history here the alexandrian empire well the first letter here is february 6th uh, 1931 and um, I'm not quite sure what started this conversation. I don't remember anything about the Hellenistic Age in the previous letter, but um, so it's it's the problem of getting because of the one side of these these dialogues. Um, I mean, he's talking about calendars mostly. He's talking about the origin of the calendars and the Greek calendar, Egyptian calendars, and how the difference between how the Greeks and the Egyptians frame their calendars. But this leads him to kind of see these. Uh, uh, kind of how the like the Greeks or specifically the Macedonians kind of mixed up with Egyptian culture he writes well I have I well now for the ignorance I haven't the slightest idea what happened to the cadaver of P. Philanthus after the court physician announced in BC 27 247 that it was all over with the poor devil it was probably mummified since the Macedonian Greeks took up with many Egyptian customs uh, the bird Tali married his own full sister for one thing and had pretty well abandoned the traditional Aryan Greek custom of burning on the pier. Alexander himself had a sumptuous entombment, and there's no reason to think differently of successors. End quote. So he's kind of hinting here at this culture mixing, right? He doesn't really judge it in this letter, but in other places, he really has a much more critical perspective on, on, on the mixtures of cultures produced by this Hellenistic age. Um, now, 
the next letter uh, is dated February 12th, and it's it's more personal. Um, just that it's his little note he gives here um, to Talman about Farnsworth Wright's health. Farnsworth Wright didn't does die as a result of this. He he lives on I think until 1940, so he, he outlives Lovecraft. But he was that main editor of Weird Tales, and so Lovecraft is is kind of jousting with him often about publication of certain stories and things like that but we, we've seen letters to Farnsworth right in the previous volume we haven't seen any in this volume yet as I recall but um, he's sick anyways he says too bad about Br'er Farnsworth who's a damn good fellow for all his occasional vagaries of editorial taste I hope the hospital session will bring results his nerve trouble is a very rare one a sort of pseudo palsy or something like that called Parkinson's disease uh, then he talks about Oriental Tales, which is becoming a quarterly magazine, which is kind of a, a sign of being in economic trouble. And, you know, I, I just actually recently read a couple of Robert E. Howard stories that were in uh, Oriental Tales. And I, I know that that was a fairly short lived magazine. So that, that definitely took a digger sometime in the in the 30s. So um, he's able to continue on his conversation about Hellenism, though in an alexandrianism in the next letter which is dated the 17th of february so it, this is the true follow-up to the first letter we just talked about and he goes on a little bit more details about his feelings about about hellenistic culture again he's not particularly judgmental as he normally is when talking about this period he's kind of following filling in some more details about the calendars of of the near east in this hellenistic age so it's actually like some interesting history if you're interested in that sort of thing, you know, assuming Lovecraft gets any of this right, which, you know, he was well read. So, but I'm, I'm not going to dig up and confirm or deny any of the, any of this stuff, that stuff that he says here. Um, but there's some interesting details here about how these different calendars got borrowed by different people in different empires throughout the Near East in this period. Um, he says, like, the Seleucid year was partially a lunar year, but its management divisions did not correspond with those of the old Greek lunar year. Instead, they followed the prevailing arrangements in Syria, which are a corrupted form of the Jewish calendar, somewhat altered by slow decay from a form you'll find in biblical dictionaries. This has been what might be called the lunar-solar year. The lunar year was certain rough attempts to square it with the solar year. End quote. So again, it's, it's not his criticism of the Hellenistic world so much, but a little bit more of just shows it kind of shows you how knowledgeable and informed he is about about Near East history and, and ancient Greek history. So he's not just talking out of his his ass on these issues. But if you're interested in calendars and how these calendars get embraced by other cultures and borrowed, it can be fun to maybe look at these letters. Right. Next, we have uh, March 24th. So this letter is pretty good. He, he first he talks about writing at the Mountains of Madness, writing, I've been wrestling with a new Antarctic story, which has turned out to be a novelette of 30 to 35,000 words to which I consequently dread to type. And we'll hear about this later on when he writes to Clark Ashton Smith, where he talks about finishing up this story. So uh, we all know this at the Mountains of Madness, but it, it didn't have a title yet, apparently. Or maybe it did, but Lovecraft just mentions it as the new Antarctic story. But the bulk of this letter uh, refers to New England history. And so basically this is Lovecraft's survey of New England history from, the, from, the, from Plymouth, from the Pilgrims, all the way through up into the American Revolution, particularly focusing on the creation of Rhode Island and uh, the exile of Roger Williams from Massachusetts Bay Colony and kind of uh, the kind of the nature of democracy in the different New England colonies. Right. So he's kind of showing off some of his knowledge about New England history here, even periodizing it into different acts, um, referring to different uh, periods of his history, one being kind of the heroic pilgrim period. And then the, the Puritan proper period is sort of act two. And that that's most important for Rhode Island history, because it's in that period that Roger Williams, for his somewhat heretical ideas, gets expelled from Massachusetts Bay Colony and, and eventually settles in Rhode Island which, of course, is going to be very important for Lovecraft's uh, own life because that's where he, you know, he lived most of his life. So he tends to take the standard view here of Massachusetts, B, Massachusetts Bay and Winthrop being kind of a bigoted, conservative community, 
um, of these religious separatists who are really kind of firm on their centralizing control. And then the more liberal, more democratic colony being, um, being in, um, in Rhode Island. He says, quote, you can see how fundamentally erroneous it is supposed the pilgrims would ever have had trouble with Williams. The government was not a theocracy at all, but a perfect and absolute democracy with everyone a freeholder and having equal votes and affairs. But he's talking, no, here he's talking about the pilgrims as a more democratic alternative to Massachusetts Bay. But it's still the main idea here is that Massachusetts Bay colony was this much more rigid theocracy compared with... Um, compared with the pilgrims and in a sense compared to Rhode Island, which um, because it was created by separatists of separatists kind of becomes a little bit more, uh, a little bit uh, freer, at least in terms of, of, of thought, which is kind of a standard interpretation we often get when we look at early New England history. So he kind of presents uh, Rhode Island as then being between these two neighbors. He talks about the Puritans as the harsh, brutal, theocratic, more oppressive neighbors. Um, and in the middle, and then you have the pilgrims who are more democratic and free and egalitarian. And in between you have Rhode Island, which he describes as independent and adventurous people. Um, so it seems that Rhode Island and, uh, and uh, the pilgrims have more in common in, in Lovecraft's view. So he's trying to get at kind of the racial and intellectual stock that, that made up Rhode Island. So it's a nice little window into New England history. He's written before about New England history and other letters, often emphasizing the maritime history here. This is a little bit of a different window, looking more at the, the, the history of these different colonies and their differences uh, to a writer who maybe is not that familiar with it, with this history. So it's, it's fairly long, but, uh, but, but worth checking out, I think. Uh, then we have April 4th, 1931, which is the final uh, letter to Tallman in this period. And this letter is mostly about New England architecture and his own fondness for a certain kind of style of architecture. Now, specifically, he's interested here in the gambrel roof, which is something, if you read Lovecraft stories, you know, comes up a lot. He's often talking about the gambrel roofs of, of New England buildings or whatever. And he's trying to work out where it comes from. Quote, it's obscure origin. It's varying flowerings in New England and Dutch areas. It's creeping down the coast to New Jersey, to Pennsylvania and the English regions. But it's apparent absence from the Pennsylvania German houses. It's rare steep manifestations in Swedish Delaware. It's sporadic reemergence in more of the New England form of Tidewater, Virginia. And it's lone, absolutely unique example in Chalmers Street, Charleston. Um, End quote. So he's talking about the Gambrel Roof. Now, I wonder if he saw that personally, that one building. He saw it and was like, wow, a Gambrel Roof in Charleston. That's really weird. What's it doing there? And maybe he looked into it a little bit. So he's trying to get at the origins here of this. Um, but he doesn't really have a good answer. He he's kind of sees it as a, not really clear where, where it first originated or came from or spread from. Um, but that's, that's all. So it's a nice uh, showing Lovecraft, a little ignorant trying to work out something that's kind of near and dear to his heart, which is New England architecture. All right, so next we have uh, two letters to Clark Ashton Smith. Um, not too much to say about these two letters, in fact. Um, the first one we have is dated uh, February 8th. And this is just story ideas, actually. Something he often talks about, um, Clark Ashton Smith with, where they bounce story ideas back between each other, um, often building off of what Clark Ashton Smith writes and then Lovecraft will praise that idea or praise that story and then kind of build off of that a little bit. Uh, they also talk about Macon here and, and the influence of Macon on some of Clark Ashton Smith's work. Um, and it actually kind of focuses on uh, the, the uh, Arthur Macon influence on both of them, right? So that's all he really says here. It's not that important. Um, then we have one uh, on March 26th where he mostly just talks about writing. I think it's only here because, you know, At the Mountains of Madness is such an important work in, you know, in Lovecraft's career. It's so important for scholars that mentioning of it in the letters, you know, made it worthwhile to put it in the selected letters. So that's all he really says is he talks about completing 
at the Lawns of Madness. This is on March 26th, uh, 19, 1931. So that's a good guess about when he, he finished up writing at the Mountains of Madness. And they talk a little bit more about weird fiction. But again, uh, not too much to say about these these uh, Clark Ashton Smith letters. All right, so next uh, we have uh, three letters to August Derleth. Um, so what to do about these? Well, um, the first is February 17th. Then we have two that appear in May and June of 1931. Um, the May 17th, or sorry, the February 17th letter, the first one we have is it's fun. It's it's a nice, very personal reflection on him playing detective as a kid. Um, so that's great. He says, but I may remark that I too was a detective in youth, being a member of the Providence Detective Agency at the ages late of 13. Our force had very rigid regulations and carrying in its pockets standard working equipment consisting of police whistle, magnifying glass, electric flashlight, handcuffs, tin badge, I still have mine, tape measures for fingerprints, revolver, mine was the real thing, but Inspector Monroe, age 12, had a water squirt pistol while Inspector Upam, age 10, uh, worried along with a cap pistol, and copies of all the newspaper accounts of desperate criminals at large, plus a paper called The Detective, end quote. So this is just a really fun uh, reflection on his childhood and his, uh, you know, plain, uh, plain detective. Um, then when we jump ahead a few months and we see the letters to Derleth for, for uh, May and June of 1931, these deal with his St. His Augustine visit. So, um, you know, Lovecraft took a lot of trips in his life, and we've actually seen the last few episodes, a couple of these trips, like the one he took to the south, uh, to Charleston and Richmond, and we saw the one he took to Quebec and how deeply that influenced him and how much he thought about it when he wrote to his uh, friends. Uh, these are letters that were written while Lovecraft was in Florida, um, particularly St. Augustine. And I really think it's, you know, important how much he tries to get, he tries to empathize with different cultures through their landscapes, their buildings, their architecture. And he sees there's something special and distinctive culturally about these different folkways in America. He realizes New England is one folkway, but that there are many other folkways in America, including Quebec being kind of a French folkway. And he sees in St. Augustine, Florida, which is uh, was one of the original forts, right, uh, that the Spanish had in Florida. Um, and it actually, the French had a fort not far from there, that was taken over by the Spanish. You know, there were French Huguenots. Uh, one of some of the earliest French settlements, I think the earliest French settlements in North America were these Huguenots. I talk about this in my series on Francis Parkman's work, of course, uh, way back uh, months and months ago in this podcast. Um, but anyways, he goes to St. Augustine and he saw this as really a, uh, a very uh, Spanish place with a very, very, like the sense of a very, of a Spanish folkway in America. And he found it quite fascinating. He writes, the ancient Spanish atmosphere is infinitely alluring and I am picking up various fresh touches of color every day. I have seen all there is to see of the ancient homes and streets and have visited the most fantastic old cemeteries imaginable. Now the subtropical scenery is a never ending delight. I am now beginning to note exotic scenery, or exotic fauna as well as flora. Um, and then he kind of gets on to dreaming about Arabian Nights and stuff. And he really kind of sees in Spanish culture these kind of Arabic influences, which I think, you know, do exist. They go back to the, to the Muslim rule in Spain, right? Uh, when, when Spain was part of the Islamic empires. And that, that certainly has influenced uh, Spanish culture in various ways. And some of that may have come over to St. Augustine. At least uh, Lovecraft seems to think about. He also sees it as kind of a window into this deeper history, right? Going back 700 years to, to kind of medieval Spanish uh, ideas and, and, and culture. Um, then he writes another letter. Uh, this one's from Dudedin, Florida. I'm not sure where that is, but uh, it's, he's mostly talking about the same trip. And he mentions whippoorwills and the presence of whippoorwills. Derleth wants to ask something about whippoorwills um, being there. And he says, yeah, we have them. And he mentions a little bit more about his, his trip. But these two letters kind of go together, both as reflections to Derleth about his, his trip to St. Augustine. 
All right, so next we have two, uh, two letters to Maurice Moe I want to talk about. Uh, one from March and one from April. They deal with different topics, so they don't really connect together very clearly in any uh, specific way. But the one from March 1931 is all about uh, literary, literature and modernism again. It's, it's a theme that he comes back to a lot where he's kind of working through in his head, you know, what what the state of contemporary literature is, how to deal with the legacy of the 19th century, which he sees as largely toxic. Um, you know, what's the fate of classicism and then what to do in literature in this new age of new science and new new understandings of humanity's place in the universe. Um, so he starts out here kind of complaining about Victorianism writing. Um, where is it? Standardized manners and perspectives are natural literature only during ages so analytical and unreflective that they can't depict human character or during other ages when the art of drawing individuals was more or less voluntarily passed up in favor of a sketchy art confined to rough universals. The latter set of conditions is what we recognize as classicism. The former is medievalism and its Victorian flareback. Romanticism, that is. Of these two positions, romanticism and classicism, the first is a disease and a defect, while the latter is a discipline verging dangerously towards being opposed. In fact, classicism can't help being opposed in this age of psychological understanding and poignant perception of human differences. Honest depictions of life must be based on realism, no matter how much that realism may be suffused with imaginative overtones derived from subjective attitudes towards reality and dream. So I'm kind of with him here. I, I kind of get this, this point. The questions I guess we can ask is to what degree does Lovecraft do this in his work? And to what degree does modern writing, the modernist traditions, do this? Now, he has some doubts, I think, about how modernists in their experimentation can, can do this. But I think where he has some crossover with the modernists is this acknowledgement that, quote, life is vague, entangled, and groping. An endless satisfaction, which begins nowhere and ends nowhere, has no values. It means only a dull pain of frustration as an imagined goal is received farther and farther out of reach into the alluring, tantalizing sunset, end quote. Which I think t explains a lot about modernist writing. It's like, if you lose this foundational values, like um, what's a good novel or, or what's a moral novel or what's a, a proper subject for a novel, if you lose that, those foundations... Uh, because we're kind of losing our, our foundation as human beings in this indifferent world and cosmic horror, something we haven't mentioned in this episode, but it's always underpinning much of what Lovecraft's writing when he's thinking about literature. Um, I, anyways, I think there's some common ground between his perspective and that of what modernists are trying to do. I just think tonally, he doesn't really care for it, right? He just doesn't like the writing so much. I think it's it's a subjective taste thing more than it is a philosophical break so anyways that's what that's it that's what that is um then we got a letter from april 9th uh to maurice mo where he talks about his ancestry and we we saw a lot of letters in the second volume of the selected letters where he talks about his ancestry and his family history and he kind of gives his family history i'm pretty sure he's done this with mo before so there's not too much new in that um but I think what he kind of gets at here, he, he's doing something I, I we saw hints of, I think, in the second volume of the Selected Letters, where he starts to doubt how important ancestry can be to telling the story of someone's life, right? And of course, it's such a big theme in his writing is, you know, the burden of ancestry and the burden of sins of the family. But here, like he writes this... Um, when you get back two or three key ancestors, any one of these can connect you up with half the worthies of Plantagenet times and before. Thus there probably isn't an Englishman in any Englishman living who isn't descended from Charlemagne or at least half a dozen of William the Conqueror's companions, all of which took a kick out of my rediscovery on the charts of bimbos like Thomas Earl of Warwick, the lines of Bouchamp, Clavering, De Clifford, Mortian, St. Alban, Fitzroux, Clolians, etc., etc. All these guys mean a lot might mean a lot in eighteen fifty. But in 1550 or 1450, they were just decoration. I can raise both a knight and a baronet at least five generations back. And so he's casting some doubt on the value of this kind of ancestral investigation, something he engaged in and, and kind of liked to do and was kind of fond of doing it. 
but he's kind of making fun of this song. So he, he's at this stage be very likely to make fun of those people who kind of dig around for their family history to see if they have a king or something in their ancestry. Because in a sense, who doesn't, right? We all can kind of find someone of import if we go back far enough and dilute our bloodlines far enough. So all this kind of gets him to doubt this whole genealogy stuff, but not just personally, but even in, in terms of culture. Because he asks this question, why did I pour over Grimm in the Arabian Nights and the Greek myths with the ardor given to no, nothing else? Why did I think that Providence, ancient Georgian hill, was a haunted place connected with some memory just eluding me? Why did the sunset seem beyond the mystical spires and domes of the lower town from Prospect Terrace, always fill me with a curious sensation of opening gates and about to be revealed wonders? Don't ask me, for I haven't the shadow of an answer. End quote. Now, what he's not doing is saying there's some kind of genetic relationship the way maybe ethno-nationalists will do right ethno-nationalists will say there's some kind of genetic relationship between the stories and the culture he's not doing that he's just saying it's just circumstance it's just what i read when i was a kid essentially that made me fond for the fond of these things so there's a bit of a contrivance when we talk about inheritance whether it's cultural or or genetic or biological right and i, I think this is an important thing to keep in mind when we Think about Lovecraft's uh, tendency to write about genealogy and family histories. There's a limit ultimately of what we can learn and how much we can learn from, from our own family history. So I guess that's enough. That, that makes the point. Um, but again, that was written to Maurice Moe, April 5th. I think it's a good letter, though. Um, what's next? Oh, Elizabeth Tolbridge. Uh, we got two letters to Elizabeth Tolbridge. In this period, the first is dated March 23rd. And he's kind of, he must have been responding to some worry that Tolbridge had about the decline of poetry, or maybe something Lovecraft said before about the declining quality of poetry. And he just says, well, poetry is as permanent a form as anything else, like painting or sculpture or music. They'll always be around, it's just going to change, and its values will change. Um, he does think, though, that modern America, quote, is of course an unfavorable environment as such things go but naturally no comprehensive student will judge the civilization as a whole by the temporary dominant element of loudmouth commercialists and utilitarians there's no law against practicing the arts even though the persons who fill the daily headlines care little about them end quote so he says maybe this isn't the ideal culture or moment for pursuing poetry but it doesn't mean poetry is not going to continue to be produced and valued and i think that's even true today i, I like who, who reads poetry, really? Uh, maybe some people read ancient poetry or old, not ancient, but old poetry, right? Um, but who subscribes to poetry journals to read new poetry? I'm sure there's a significant number of people out there that do that, but I haven't met too many of them. Uh, I know some people who write poetry, though. When I taught at university, I met people who, who did write poetry and publish poetry. But, you know, I know nothing about it, right? So I think we're still not in the, like, the, it's like poetry is not like pop music, right? It, it, but there was a time poetry maybe was the pop music of, of its day. And there's some nostalgia for that. But Lovecraft's like, these art forms will continue on in some form. Um, now, but this leads him then to go talking about government. And this will feed into the next letter he writes about a month later to Tolbridge, dealing with uh, essentially democracy and stuff like that. So as we know, he's pretty hostile to democracy. He writes, if anything is truly lamentable, it's to the extent to which 19th century people naively swallowed the democratic hoax, thereby strengthening the popular adherence to a meaningless fetish incapable of contemporary application. Today, all government involves the most obtruse and complicated technology, so the average citizen is absolutely without power to form any intelligent estimate of the value of any proposed measure. Now on this, I, I kind of can't help but agree, right? It's a... Uh, we, you know, maybe when, you know, in the 18th century, a fairly well-educated person or fairly informed person or someone, you know, like Benjamin Rush wanted men to be educated to, so they could be Democrats, right? So they could be active citizens in a democracy. This gets into the whole Republican motherhood idea. But there's the idea you could be competent in enough that you could make informed decisions. So when you vote, 
you're in voting for the best interest of the society or whatever. You're, you're doing some from the foundation of, of some kind of virtue via education that's derived through education. But in this, in the modern age, what can we know, right? How, how can we make decisions on, on science? Like if you look at all the anti-vax movements and some of the anti-science we see now in modern America, you know, it's kind of ridiculous to a degree, but sometimes I'm, I'm, I understand where it comes from because there's an opaqueness to science, right? Most of us don't get higher degrees in science. We can't, don't read scientific journals. We're not in touch with that stuff. So how can we make informed decisions? It's easier just to look at a meme on the internet and say, oh, vaccination is bad for you. And so I'm going to vote against vaccinations, even though that's, you know, a bad decision for the overall public health. So I, I, I think there's something here that he's getting to that if, if we we're really going to end up with a society run by technocrats and, and all democracy can really do is approve the rule of the technocrats, just provide a rubber stamp to it. He's, he writes, only the most highly trained technicians can have any real idea of what any government policy or operation is about. Hence, the so-called will of the people is merely a superlificity without the least trace of value in meeting and dealing with specific problems, right? And then he says, what's the answer to this? And he says, well, we have a couple out there. One is like the Soviet Union. One the other is fascism, which is, you know, already taking power in Europe by this point. And he says, like, they're, you know, they provide an answer to this problem of just, just rule by the state. They'll just run things. They'll just organize economic life for people. And... And that's that. And and Lovecraft here claims to be a pragmatist, saying, you know, this is just the way things are. He writes, what a government may reasonably be expected to guarantee to the individual a relative physical security, a chance to obtain the surroundings and impressions with har which harmonize with one's background. You kind of believe he added that as <laughs> his own kind of cultural uh, values, but... Uh, going on, quote, abilities or appreciative capacities, a freedom to express intellectual opinion, an aesthetic personality without restriction, a general atmosphere favorable to the creation of arts and the search for truth for their own sakes, and continuity of folkways sufficient to promote a sense of congenial placement, end quote. Now, he's definitely inserting some of his own politics here, like with this, that we need to, government should ensure that we're part of our folkway or whatever, which seems kind of strange but that's grounded that's pragmatic as opposed to things like self-sufficiency self-government democracy these are words he throws out there as things that government really can't right promise or if if they do it's kind of it's it's just a euphemism so um that's the march 23rd letter it's a fun one um he writes again to elizabeth tolbridge about poetry a little bit but i'll just skip that but he gets back to this question of democracy in a couple paragraphs um where he she must have said something questioning him on his anti-democratic values and he says well democracy has its place maybe in ancient greece but that only worked because they were slavery maybe uh, old new england like the pilgrims could have it but uh, you know we're just not in a world that where people can be knowledgeable enough to participate in government in, in a realistic way. He writes, everything in modern existence is a direct and absolute corollary of the discoveries of applied steam power and of large scale applications of electrical energy. And there's no possible way to make a discovery once it has been stumbled onto. It was so when the principle of agriculture was first stumbled upon some 20,000 years ago or slightly less. Before that time, mankind were simply nomads hunting and tending flocks. That, Accident created civilization, a whole new way of life, and many doubtless regretted the change at the time. Actually, no one way of life has naturally evolved as much better or worse than the other. So he's, he, I think he's, again, onto something that's quite true, that technologies do lead us to new ways of existence. And when they do that, along with this come different forms of government and different values. And that comes kind of as a Trojan horse in with the technology. 
but by the time you're ensconced in it, it it's not something you can really resist right um so though he's not a luddite ultimately he doesn't like this new machine culture but he's also not a luddite because he doesn't think he can fight against it it's just inevitable so these two letters go together quite well i think all right next two letters um to James Ferdinand Morton. Now, in the last episode, we had a couple real doozy letters to James Ferdinand Morton. And I don't know, again, if this is a, a selection process by the editors of the selected letters. Um, I really hope there is a, a big one-volume book of the Morton letters back and forth. I'd love to read it. So, and I could answer this question, but, or is it just that after how nasty and how kind of aggressive Lovecraft got in the last letters to Morton that he just toned things down for a while. But from for the whole spring and summer of 1931, we only have these two letters here. And neither talk about much of interest. Uh, the one he writes just dates spring 1931. He just talks about enjoying going outside and the scenery and, you know, you can smell the flowers again, whatever. Then in June 16th, he writes about South Florida and all he really says is the climate of South Florida is really nice. Quote, Miami's vegetation of the subtropics doesn't get that far south, while that of the true tropics does not naturally attain its fullest development. But Key West is a real thing. You know, and he talks a little bit about St. Augustine and how much he liked that. So he's not doing any, he's not continuing the conversation he was having before about race and um, and civilization and and all that stuff because but if you want to know more about that go back to the end of my last episode where I, I get into those couple letters he wrote um so next may 12th william lumley so i think this is the first letter we've seen to william lumley he's a he does he's someone who kind of joins lovecraft's correspondence circle later in his life he was also a weird fiction writer um maybe also publishing weird tales but all they write about here, all he talks about is his inspiration for the story. So it's just a, kind of like his letters to Clark Ashton Smith, where he talks about different ideas for stories. But um, yeah. Uh, oh, it's a story he wants. He says it's a story about a land in darkness. And I don't know if it was Lumley initiated the idea and Lovecraft says, oh, that's a good idea. I think that's that's more or less what happens there. Um. Then we have uh, George Henry George Wies. So Henry George Wies is a is a socialist writer that Lovecraft was writing with, and he's the one who, if you remember, a couple episodes ago, he he suggests that he sets um, Woodburn Harris to, to he tries to introduce him to Woodburn Harris so they can work it out because Harris being a conservative and Wies being a, a socialist. But this is a letter to Wies from Lovecraft, which. Uh, Basically talks about communism and socialism and, and different things like that. Um, now, how he gets to this. So anyways, this letter is dated June 5th, 1931. Um, so what he how he gets here is he's talking about ethics. And so it's, it's a conversation about ethics or it's a little dissertation about ethics. Based on this idea, like, do people, do human beings have a sense of obligation to one another? You know, so it must have been Vies argued something along the lines of human beings have a natural inherent um, obligation to help one another. And we can imagine Lovecraft would not think too much of this idea. Um, he says, now to the argument. I don't really see that we're made much progress in trying to find a non-religious basis for the sense of obligation. You've done some noble and subtle reasoning, all valid and clarifying in many directions, but the gist of the basic question still remains untouched. Why should anybody do anything which nature doesn't force him to do, which would not advance his own individual satisfaction? Now, I think Lovecraft's being a little bit too harsh here. Now, again, I don't know Visa's argument was really bad, but it's not that hard, it seems to me, to make a case without religion for being basically good to one another, right? Even in a self-interested case, one could make, but um, it's, you know, Lovecraft here comes off as just too social Darwinian for me, right? So one argument that V seems to make is that civilization, as it expands, will expand its moral boundaries, right? Which is an argument I've heard 
made more recently by certain by people. Isn't that something that uh, Steve Pinker seems to argue that that kind of as civilization develops, our moral calculus expands to include more and more people, right? Sort of, you got uh, even we. I did Aldo Leopold in a series earlier on this podcast, in my main podcast, where he talks about how our kind of ethical obligations expand from the tribe to the clan to the society at large to humanity, and then eventually to nature, right? And Lovecraft's not convinced by this. Um, he says the whole concept of rigid right or justice or a Obligatory element has no conceivable basis outside of mystical religion. I've tried in vain to find anything in your arguments which would challenge that position. Uh, and from here, he goes on to talk about socialism, because I think Wies's arguments were based somewhat on uh, Marxism, because he Lovecraft here mentions like your Marxist quotations and blah, blah, blah. But again, to take this on, I, I don't see why humanity itself can't be the end. I don't see why it's that, why you need religion to do that, to believe in mutual obligation. Many philosophers have done this, and even non religious philosophers have come to this conclusion. So, I don't know. I think Lovecraft's being a little bit too obtuse here. Maybe he just didn't read these philosophers, or he's too bound up in this uh, um, social Darwinian frame of mind. But, anyways. There's a little bit here about uh, then he, he kind of goes on to talk about socialism and communism, but in kind of in a mocking way, like he says, oh, your, your Marx Engels quotes and observations are really nice and, and interesting, but they don't really answer the question. He kind of just discards it without too much reasoning. Now, he's sort of uh, it's kind of ranty. It doesn't really do its job very systematically, unfortunately. Um, but he says, uh, my frank position is that I have no conceivable system. I can think of no conceivable system of communism could bring civilized people any possible recompense for the damage that its establishment would inevitably involve. Otherwise, I'm personally neutral. I don't give a damn whether my grandfather's ex-coachman knows more or less Latin or appreciates literature more or less than I do. It's all one to me. I wouldn't give a nickel either to teach him to keep or keep him from learning. But I'm goddamned if I'll stand up for being held back myself, merely waiting for him to catch up. As for communism, I don't give a damn whether it exists or not, so long as it lets gentlemen alone and doesn't alter the relationship betwixt the individuals and the best opportunities for free intellectual and aesthetic expression. So, I don't know. That's his opinion. Uh, he's, I think he's denying that writers at the time were dealing with this question of aesthetic liberation in terms of communism. The, the great example of this is The Soul of Man Under Socialism by Oscar Wilde, which was written some 20 years before this. And he deals directly with this issue, right? Socialism is, in Wilde's mind, a better foundation for liberating art than the market and the marketplace and, and just being having to worry about your survival, the survival of your family, the survival of others, right? It's kind of, I think he gets into there how toxic charity is because charity implies that I have a obligation to care for everyone else that's poorer than me rather than just having that to be the duty of society as a whole. Um, so I think there's a limit to Lovecraft's imagination in terms of, of socialism. But, you know, it's easy also to point out the brutalities of the Soviet system, which were not unknown uh, to people in the 1930s. So... Anyways, um, but it's not a bad, uh, it, it, it's, we learn a little bit about this, this, this conversation Wies and Lovecraft were having. We don't have, we, I don't think we've seen a letter uh, between these two before. Maybe, maybe something showed up in the second volume, but I don't remember. All right. Um, so that pretty much does all the letters except for one. Uh, to Frank Belknap Long, which was written in February on February 27th. Actually, I think it was written on February 26th and 27th, 1931. And it's a massive letter. It's just huge. Um, so how to start? Um, it's about 50 pages, actually. So I guess this is a job for Voluminous, that podcast. If they haven't looked at this letter, they probably should. 
Um, but let me try to sum it up. He begins talking about his own mythology, and he calls it Yogg-Sothothism. So it's uh, if you want a term that's not the Cthulhu mythos, which of course was invented by others. Uh, I think he talked about the Arkham cycle sometimes, but here he uses the term Yogg-Sothothism, which is a nice uh, term, I guess. It's basically referring to his old mythology. Um, but this gets him to go into a conversation about cosmic isolation, and he goes on for about three or four pages talking about cosmic isolation. Now, I'm certain this is something he's said too long before. It's not a new conversation between the two, but it's it's the heart of his philosophy, right? And this heart of his engagement with modern science is we are just, the universe, cosmos is indifferent to us and that leaves us very isolated, right? Um, now, what he adds to this is a little conversation about the mind. And he seems to say cognition itself, the mind itself, is something that we can rest on. It's kind of like a Cartesian argument, right? Because um, he's been kind of searching for what's this boat that we can that we can rest in in this sea, this cosmic sea. And he often talks about culture being that boat. And he doesn't disagree with that here. He doesn't backtrack on that but he seems to add something that the mind itself but it's very limiting in how far it can get us especially socially he writes to hell with collectivism and machine culture conventionalism and veiled neo-marxist marxism truth is truth cognition is cognition you don't have to be a babbit or a bolshevik in order to demand a pure truth and hook them fat dago pope's dish out or the sideline tripe cooked up by the bull brain physicists on their mental vacations god if only some of these conventional hounds would let a ray of genuine originality through their cut and dried copyings once in a dog's age. So there's a bit of a ranting there about religion, uh, Catholicism, and things like that. Um, but the problem with just the mind, yeah, you could say cognition is cognition. Truth is truth. But, quote, cognition as such is completely without social or aesthetic implication, except insofar as it places certain obvious contradictions of natural laws. So maybe you can... You can determine some things through cognition alone, but ultimately we're, we're going to need culture, right? So this gets him then back to that conversation that he repeats to many, many people about race and civilization and machine culture and the threat of machine culture to it. So it's all kind of repetitive. But again, the argument essentially is that culture then becomes our, our new foundation that we can rest in. And we all have our kind of cultural legacies and our, our racial sort of memory that we don't get magically through our genetics or, or, or anything like that, but through the culture that we're used to, just through our experiences, right? But that becomes then something solid that we can orient ourselves via. It's not going to really solve the problem that we're lost at sea, but at least as far as the ship's concerned, it gives us an orientation. Um, now comes along machine culture, which, which threatens to sabotage and degrade that. Right. And yeah, it's trying to replace it with something new, but that but it's not really going to solve the problem. Right. And it's actually a less solid foundation because it's more mongrelized, I guess, is the term Lovecraft might use. It's uh, it's more deterministic, so it takes away human freedom. Um, so that's another problem with it. It's, it's more democratic and mixed and, and muddy. So the ship has holes in it, if it, I guess, if you want to take the metaphor farther so ultimately the solution is uh this need for great traditions and he goes on for about 12 pages talking about various great traditions so yeah he just made a pretty nasty comment about the catholics but he does say like both catholic and protestant cultures do provide that right Right. Even saying so far as evangelical Protestantism is the only honest religion ever professed by the Occidental world since the altars of our Saxon fathers were swept away by the shivling priests of Dark Age papists. Only the real Protestants, best exemplified by the Puritans, ever attempted to carry out the fact what every so-called Christian by virtue of the silly dog Mata he swallowed nominally believes himself commanded to carry out. So he's got a preference for Protestantism, but he's not fully... You know, I think ultimately he's saying we need these great traditions, right? We, in, in this sense, even uses the term intellectual traditionalism as a, as a term for what he's trying to get at here. Um, and he says now we, we kind of lack these great universal traditions or they're being eroded, right? 
So he, he ends up going back and forth quite a lot between like he kind of dwells on the American Protestant tradition as kind of a good example of one of these great universal traditions that again can be sort of our foundation. Um, but then he kind of mixes that up with different conver- different side discussions like civilization technology. He talks a little bit about Lafcadio Hearn again. Someone he talked I mentioned in the last episode, I believe. Someone that Lovecraft was kind of influenced by. But yeah, that's even though this is a really long letter, it really boils down to that that main idea, right? That we need to have a tradition to be um, to be the foundation of our basic spirit, and we're losing that, and and that's just going to leave us adrift. But he kind of what's I think distinctive about this letter is his tendency to go towards religion as as an example of something that sort of can work, but he specifies Protestant Christianity as maybe the most honest of the religions. He doesn't seem to think much of most of them, but he thinks Protestantism is maybe the most honest one. And that probably comes honestly out of his own personal history, right? His own family history and the fact that he's a New Englander. I guess the only other notable thing to say about this letter is his, his... it kind of exposes some fairly strong anti-Catholicist views here. I'll give you a, a, a taste of this here. Um, the Latins, most direct heirs of paganism, deliberately cast the pragmatic program of their faith into antique pagan form, except for certain verbal quibbles and certain inconsistent flarebacks of irrational ethicism. They discarded the Christian idea of religion as an ethical force and even let their ethics slide down below that ascetic point insisting, insisted on by the virile antique Romans. Priests who had been simple, simply gluttons, wenchers, wine soaps, thieves, and beggars before now became murderers, pederasts, sadists, and corruptors on a truly hellobegalan scale. Among these people, the Christian element in religion became so submerged that it ceased to be expected. Hypocrisy itself virtually disappeared since the departure was so great as to make the religion a wholly new one. Retaining the name Christianity merely as one uses the word which is new to the present, which has some alien forgotten and utterly antipodal meaning in the past. Now, what's relevant about this is I think he sees this is what's happening to kind of Western culture overall with this introduction of so-called machine culture, right? That it may keep the form of the older more more honest rooted tradition but it's going to become a debased degraded version of that and he kind of picks on catholicism here a little too harshly i think but you know whatever he's he did he does see the protestant tradition as a, an example of a great tradition that can ride us through this cosmic uh, indifference at least as far as we live right because eventually we're dead and it doesn't matter but the problem is, in the meantime, what do we do? So, anyways, that with that, we're, we're getting really towards the end of the, the third volume of the Selected Letters of H.P. Lovecraft. I think altogether there's 37 more letters I need to look at. So the next episode will be 20. Then I'll do an episode of just the final 17. But there's not much here, I think. Um, it only looks like 60, 70 pages left out of, uh, out of 450. So um, looks like a lot of short letters. But hopefully there's a lot of interesting things we can talk about in the, in the next couple sets. So um, I guess that's it for now. I really encourage you to look at that long letter. Long. It's long and to, directed to Frank Belknap Long. About 50 pages or so. I also think the the letters to Elizabeth Tolbridge are pretty relevant here. Um, I think the one to Henry George Reese on ethics and socialism is good. So I, I think those are the highlights here. There's also the trip to the South. So let's not forget that he's uh, he took a trip to Florida, and uh, it's kind of a as always these trips seem to have a big influence on his thinking about different civilizations and cultures and landscapes and you know he seems to constantly be having his kind of perspective broadened by these by these trips so uh that'll be it for now so i'm going to 
to uh, shut down now and um, start reading on the rest of the letters to see what we have to say in the next set. So as always, thanks for listening. Um, let me know what you think about any of this stuff. And I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Oh,